0: Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to conservation and stewardship of the natural world. I'm Dylan Bonyasco, I'm a landscape architect, outdoorsman, and conservationist. I'm learning from exceptional people who are working to improve our relationship with land in one way or another. Subscribe on your preferred podcast app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. fields is a conservationist and rancher from Western Colorado his background is in conservation biology and landscape scale conservation planning he worked for many years in Alaska for the Forest Service and as executive director of Sitka Conservation Society before serving as Western strategic director of Wildlands Network Kenyon was also one of the founding members of Western Landowners Alliance along with Mary Conover now husband and wife Kenyon and Mary own and operate Mountain Island Ranch, a generational 32,000-acre cattle ranch along the Utah-Colorado border entirely under conservation easement, with another 100,000 acres of grazing allotments on public land. We talked about Kenyon's own green fire moment, a reference to Otto Leopold and the experience that led him toward the ideas that we now celebrate. Kenyon's was a transformative summer spent working in forestry in southeast Alaska. We also delved into Mountain Island Ranch's current operations, their restoration projects, and their approach to public grazing allotments. I'd encourage you to visit KenyonFieldsPhoto.com for some context of the landscape we're discussing. It's really something. He does a great job capturing the drastic seasonal change, the diverse wildlife, and the everyday ranching scenes out there, along with stunning landscapes across the world. And, of course, you've heard about Western Landowners Alliance by now. In some recent episodes, I hope you'll go to their website and peruse some of their content, if you haven't already. Here's episode 37. All right, folks, I've got Kenyon Fields here on the phone. Kenyon, how are you doing, man?
1: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: Morning. Yeah, how is it where you are? You're not too far from me over there near the the Utah border, right?
1: Yeah, finally it's cooled off, and it's been a gorgeous fall. Hotwoods are turning.
0: Yeah, it has been. We've got a few more. I think we've got about a week left here of nice weather, so I'm going to try to get out and do some more fishing and enjoy it before the snow flies. Sounds good. I uh, was looking at some photos on your website, actually, of the property that you're on, and we can we can touch on that, but are you are you getting out and taking some fall photography right now?
1: I am, yeah. And actually, I just got back from a little break with some buddies uh, in uh, what's known as the Beef Basin south of Canyonlands Park, pretty rural or uh, remote area. Um, doing some uh, some scouting around in the rocks looking for ancient ruins and whatnot and drove back home through the Abajo Mountains, which were just on fire and asking for a lot of uh, love photography
0: we should come back to that but um i wanted to i wanted to touch base with you for a few different reasons i i found out about you partially through your involvement with western landowners and with uh, with wildlands network uh, both of whom we've featured on the show before and um stumbled across your photography and your work in ranching out there in in far western colorado and eastern and uh eastern utah and um yeah, I really wanted to hear about your conservation ethic. It sounds like you've got quite a story. Uh, could you kind of enlighten me on on how you got here and you know what launched your career into conservation and ranching?
1: Sure. Um, well, particularly given the, the title of your podcast, "The Land Ethic," I'm, I'm assuming most of your listeners are familiar with Aldo Leopold. And um, I hope so. Well, <laughs> many conservationists and environmentalists will refer to having had a, a green fire moment that sparked their relationship with the natural world and their and their career and, and trying to protect it. And that's, um, you know, of course, a reference to a, a moment, I don't know, probably 100 years ago when uh, a young elder Leopold was a ranger, I believe in Arizona, and shot a wolf as, as one did back then for, for predator control um, and arrived at its side. In time to watch uh, what he described as, I think, a fierce green fire in its in its eyes uh, flame out, and uh, you know, he, he for him it was a turning point in his relationship with the natural world, and and sent him on the path to create the land ethic and and uh, to write yeah. the land ethic. And for for me, it was a, more of a green fire summer i guess you'd say (laughs) i I was as fortunate as a youngster that my mom and her mother had lots of natural history magazines lying around the house all the time and one point i saw an ad for from the u.s forest service offering that they'd uh, pay your way to alaska if you'd volunteer for a summer and you just had to be 18 and with a stroke of a pen i became 18 and it was uh best fib of my life As as a 17 year old they didn't check and i I found myself on a plane uh, landing in Ketchikan which is the uh the southern end of of Alaska in the temperate rainforest there in the Tongass where we were trained and given bear safety for a few days and then put on a float plane out to Misty Fjords uh National Monument which is um just a fantasy world of norwegian looking you know fjords and and then temperate rainforest cloaking the sides and and valley bottoms and wow um yeah i get to spend the summer there doing a variety of things uh living on a uh, a float house uh offshore and you know with a with a crew of adults and so you know my my first moments walking around in that old growth temperate rainforest were transformative for me um i i had no words for what i was seeing uh And, you know, having then spent the summer basically seeing a a natural system that has no extinct species, uh, that has been flourishing untouched since the glaciers left it, seeing all the components of a natural system, watching wild salmon runs do their thing, and, and the bears and mink and river otters eating those salmon and dragging them into this, you know, fantasy forest. Right away, taught, told me what I was, was going to be studying. I, I suddenly uh, knew that, that I wanted to study this, this forest, figure out what, why this is so different from any other forest. And, um, but then over the course of the summer, every few weeks, they'd, they'd come pick us up and fly us to Ketchikan, which is a, a pulp mill town. One of the two big pulp mills in, in the Tongass uh, created after the Second War. And, you know, you'd, you'd fly over, as soon as you left the boundary of the National Monument, all you saw was clear cuts from subalpine down to the waterline. Which, you know, I'd, I'd seen clear cuts as a kid flying over the Cascades, but I, don't, I, I didn't until then understand what they represented, having spent that summer on the ground. And, but by the end of the summer, I, I, I not only knew what I wanted to study, but I knew I needed to f- figure out how to protect these forests from that fate. And you know, hence uh, sort of a green fire summer, if you will. Um, and I, it transformed me from a pretty disinterested and and uh, uh, disgruntled teenager and and terrible student, non non student, into a, <laughs> someone that just gobbled up um, for the rest of my my high school and uh, and then you know into college. I, I knew my knew my path, I guess you could say. And I've never done anything else since.
0: In that essay that you referred to from Leopold, Thinking Like a Mountain, where he tells the the green fire story, he describes getting in trouble because he he was out there supposed to be working and he would go off and just kind of explore, and um, (laughs) he was starting to fall in love with the landscape the way that you were. Did you ever get in trouble out there with the U.S. Forest Service?
1: (laughs) It was uh, building trails and things like that for the people that were supposedly going to come and hike someday down the road, but at the time it was... Um, it was the middle of nowhere, and there were no tourists, and there were no no nothing. So, what, you put a bunch of adults and a few teenagers in the field like that. And let's just say we had a good time too. Got our share of uh, crabs and shrimp and <laughs> salmon. And, yeah,
0: man. Yeah, what an amazing experience. On uh, if listeners want to learn more about the Tongas, we on episode twenty four I had Natalie Dawson, formerly of uh, Audubon Alaska and we talked all about it, and uh, there's a film called Understory that she was a part of where you can see what Kenyon is talking about.
1: D- didn't you have Andrew, Andrew Toms on as well?
0: Uh, no. Is that someone I should talk to?
1: He's the director of Sipka Conservation Society, um, which uh, is a, a group I ran years years back, and I, I thought you had featured him on your show, but if you, if you haven't, um, yeah, give him a ring.
0: There you go. Love it me about that experience is is that where you went next to sitka conservation or did you go back to school
1: yeah no. so i went to college and uh studied temperate rainforest ecology and then grad school where i took it up a level and studied systems dynamics you know applied to, to looking at how natural systems in general work not just the temperate rainforest um and all along did um lots of field studies and as well as in jobs with various conservation and science groups and tried my hand at being an environmental educator. And, but, but pretty quickly, yeah, I ended up in, in old growth conservation, either in Washington State or, or Alaska, a little bit B.C., um, and that led to – well, actually, I worked for the Forest Service again a couple more times and, and then became director of the Conservation Society, which was the, uh, the first – conservation group to form in Alaska after the Wilderness Act was signed. Um, they formed a few years later specifically to propose the first wildernesses in, in Alaska and, and uh, you know, as a direct response to the, the pulp mills that were, were eating up America's largest national forest. And yeah, that was a, that was a tremendous honor and experience to, to work with that organization and some of the elders that were still on the board going back. Of the early days.
0: Wow! So you've now worked with the uh, national, you know, with the Forest Service. You've worked in a, in a public agency. You've worked with environmental nonprofits, and we'll get into your private ranching as well. So you've kind of got a whole uh, a, a very well-rounded approach here.
1: I, I did try my hand at a, you know a lot of different ways to be involved in conservation. Um, you know, we, we I took like a conservation society. We're very involved in litigation against um, some of the the timber sales um, that the Bush administration were promulgating at the time. And, you know, I tried environmental education and policy work and, um, yeah, mostly, I guess entirely was, was working on public land issues until uh, Western Landowners Owners Alliance and uh, ranching came into my life.
0: How did that happen?
1: Let's see. I, I, I in a break between um, jobs, I, I had met Michael Soule, Dr. Michael Soule, who's the you know considered the, was the founder of the field of conservation biology. And bless his heart, he, he passed a few years ago. But very um, you know, quickly became a a friend and mentor. I'd read his his, his papers um, in college, and he. He asked me to be his strategy director for western issues with with wildlands network and uh, as i helped him you know so so wildlands network was about connecting organizations and people to protect connected networks of land um, around not just the west but but elsewhere Um, I, i was west specific and in, in in doing so and in meeting these people and looking at the conservation challenges and opportunities around the west it it became clear to us that land trusts were working with private lands with a specific end goal end game in mind and you know certainly sportsmen's groups some organizations were working with private landowners but by and large there was a, a huge amount of the, the the land base in the west that was Either, either owned or operated by um, private ranching interests. And by and large, we're not organized at any sort of scale. Um, mm. Usually if there was organization it was uh, around more local issues at a local or regional scale by some really, really great efforts. But you know, I'm thinking big picture around the West, you know, we noticed there was not an organization representing conservation-minded landowners. And and we kept in, in looking at the jigsaw puzzle that is conservation in a landscape where you have both public and private lands. Um, yeah. you, you just cannot ignore some, you know, particularly these large ranches that are often the biological core of the landscape, and conservation scientists would think about cores connected by corridors and surrounded by, you know, buffered uh, buffer lands. And and oftentimes we look to the public estate as the the core areas, you know, the national parks and wilderness areas as being the the biological hearts. But that's that's often actually not true in the West, and the the private lands were settled uh, because they were the most abundant uh in in uh by a variety of metrics and um, right.
0: it's where all the water is it's where yeah. the fertile soil is yeah
1: um and so the, you know, so the wildlife are there too uh for for the majority of their year or, or they at least have some some reliance on these private lands for, for a critical portion of their of their year so anyway we um we started ha- involving more ranchers in, in our conversations about large landscape uh, planning and, and conservation. And uh, after a you know, series of, of meetings with some key conservation-minded landowners of big acreages in the West, um, it became clear that you know, there, there was uh, interest in considering uh, forming an organization to represent these people in, in these discussions, and that was the, the gen- well, and, and, and so, you know, my, Michael basically gave me, Soleil gave me the go-ahead to pursue this, and I got asked to, to form the Western Landowners Alliance, you know, set it up as a nonprofit profit and raise initial money to uh, hire a skeleton staff, and that's how I got into it.
0: What were those early days like? Where, did you have clear goals in mind, or was it kind of like, let's get these people together and, and just fill in the missing links in this jigsaw puzzle?
1: Uh, that's a very good question. And, uh, it's, you know, those early days facilitating those early meetings was a bit, um, trying to raffle an alligator, I guess you could say. It was, uh, everybody had a lot of ideas going in a lot of directions and it was a, a you know a, a ball of a lot of energy and enthusiasm that needed aiming and um, which is a good problem to have of course, but but the challenge was you know all the many things we could talk about and work on related to western land and wildlife issues and land, land management and uh, from a private perspective you know what what really what are our core competencies and, and what, what are the missing, what's missing out there that we might contribute to? Um, and so, you know, a lot of whiteboarding, um, certain themes would, would, would arise that, that have never gone away since, like water, the preciousness of water and all the challenges we're facing all around mm-hmm. the West with, uh, with water. Um, and, and honestly, you know, we just celebrated our 10th anniversary as an organization. And um, one of the exercises I, I did as part of that was to pull up some of our initial materials, uh, our, our founding charter, and some of our early statements of goals, and read them aloud to the crew because my fascination 10 years later, after all the various metamorphoses this organization has gone through, we were still absolutely on track with all of those original goals. And, you know, it spoke something of the nature of the group, but also I think more importantly of the importance of, of the Alliance's goals and, and uh, the consistency of of feelings amongst the participant landowners.
0: Did you have, I'm projecting a little bit here. Did you have uh, any sense of like, imposter syndrome or anything, dealing with these, <laughs> I imagine, generational ranchers, these folks can be intimidating, and I think if you're an outsider, which many of us might feel like, again, I'm projecting, um, I don't know, yeah, How how is that, working with folks who have been here and their families have been here for a long time, and you're coming in and trying to trying to help?
1: Uh, it's, it's a fantastic phrase, imposter syndrome. Um, it it uh, very astutely <laughs> sums up uh, my feelings uh, to this day, actually. Anyway. <laughs>
0: um, sure, that's healthy. Well,
1: so right out of the gate, the way I handled that was I I said to the the founding board members, I said, "I'm you know I've, I've done nonprofits my whole life, and I've started coalitions and this and that, so I'm happy to bring that you know background to help get this organization off the ground, but I'm not the right one to lead it. So I'll give you a year, uh-huh. and and then fortunately within. Almost a year to date, um, Leslie Allison had had been uh, one of our first hires as a program officer, and my wife Mary and I pulled her aside one day and said, "You need to run this organization." And she, of course, very humbly kept backing away and backing away, and we kept twisting her arm. And she's, uh, you know, famously been a fantastic leader um, ever since. So I did get to step away after that year and focus more on what I could bring to the. Table as a, as a someone with more of a background in conservation, not ranching itself. But over the over the years, you know, I, I well, I ended up marrying one of the founding board members uh, within short order of all this happening, and so I, I promptly moved to her her multi generational ranch, um, and you know, got 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 my hands uh, dirty pretty quick with the issues that these folks. Are facing.
0: So that would be Mountain Island Ranch where you are now, right? Correct. Tell me about that, man. I've, I've seen some pictures on your website. It's absolutely stunning landscape, but can you describe, like, I guess the, the historical and ecological background of that place?
1: Well, yeah, The, the way the way it came into the WLA orbit was, you know, as I was calling around asking who are shining examples of people Trying to fit all these pieces together in such a way that includes conservation and long-term preservation of, of the landscape and of the livelihoods and the you know the uh, keeping these ranches whole. Um, you know who who are trying progressive things, whether they work or not. And you know right away, someone said, "Well, you need to call Mary Conover," and you know her family's been been trying alternative things for a long time. And so her, her, her mother and um, stepfather put the ranch together about 50 years ago, put back together. The it had been the first ranch uh, in the area formed in the late 1880s after the utes were forcibly removed from the area. And over the years, the ranch had been broken up into smaller ranches and, and something was going on 50 years ago that put a lot of that back on the market for rock bottom prices, and, and they were able to put back together the original ranch. And Mary um, has spent much of her life on the place. And, and you know, they they early on um, helped form a land trust in the area where there had not been one, uh, in order to uh, put all the private lands under easement, which was seen as a crazy and radical thing by the neighborhood at the time. And you know and then then when mary mary's mom is 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 still uh, with us and has uh, a portion of the ranch, but mary now runs or mary and I run the the rest of it and uh when Mary took it over, she uh, put it under organic status, um, both the cattle herd and the the uh the farms or you know the land base, um, which again was seen as a, a crazy thing and and then, just in every other direction has some you know it's well it was a bison ranch until the politics of that um, put an end to it and uh, it was uh, it was a sheep ranch, it was a cattle ranch it's back to cattle now um, and but all throughout you know they've they've tried various conservation practices and and holistic range management practices and um had a great relationship with all the agencies. Again, all in the spirit of, of trying to be the best land stewards, failing with various things, um, you know, here and there and succeeding with others along the way. It's, been, it's just been, uh, been a great op- you know, opportunity to, to learn and, and uh, experience.
0: Well, Your wife sounds like a pretty amazing person. I, I really admire people with the audacity to go against the grain. I had Jeff Laszlo on previously and he was describing kind of the same thing he's like you know your neighbors might turn their nose at you when you start doing this stuff because it's kind of it's a little different and it's maybe a little intimidating to to folks who see it as um a departure from maybe how things have been done for a long time but um it takes people like that to you know to experiment and, and try new things and not be afraid of the social repercussions or whatever
1: absolutely and i i yeah i hold them in high regard her, her whole family for that and um you know and it continues to this day where we right now we're working on a grant with the local land trust color color colorado west land trust um who you know it's very thoughtful in trying to do more than just um you know, achieve conservation easements on places and then walk away. They're, they're thinking about long-term relationships with these properties and what they call continuing stewardship. Uh, so we did a grant together for the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation that allows us to do various um, experimental, you know, land restoration, land health projects on our ranch and then provide – guidance and materials and, uh, contacts and whatnot for some of the ranchers in the neighborhood to do demonstration projects on, on their properties and just give some of these things a try. And that's been a really, that's been a neat way to, to go about it.
0: Folks, I got to talk to you about Magic Mind. I've been taking it for weeks and I'm really finding it helpful for increasing productivity and focus. It's a blend of nootropics, adaptogens, and matcha. That gives you a sustained calm focus without caffeine jitters i've gone from three cups of coffee to one i'm able to sit and focus for longer periods of time and i don't feel depleted or dehydrated by the end of the day the matcha has compounds called catechins that slow your body's ability to absorb caffeine so it's like an extended release version of coffee l-theanine reduces stress so you avoid the cortisol dump and subsequent crash other ingredients like lion's mane ashwagandha, and cordyceps mushrooms reduce inflammation and support immunity and energy levels. It's good stuff with real healthy ingredients. I really started to notice a difference and reduce dependency on coffee after taking it regularly for about a week. So for long-term benefits of focus and reduced stress and inflammation, consider a subscription package of Magic Mind. It comes in a cool little carton with individual servings. I keep it in the fridge and I take one after breakfast with coffee. Try it for yourself. You can go to magicmind.co slash landethic to get 40% off a subscription or 20% off a one-time purchase for the next 10 days using promo code landethic20. magicmind.co slash landethic, promo code landethic20. In that light, can you kind of um, talk a little bit through the operations and the management of this place, including maybe some of the restoration projects you're undertaking? Like you said, working cattle ranch, um, I guess you're growing you're growing hay or alfalfa. Tell me about what's going on out there.
1: Um, well, it's you know, it's always it's it's changed throughout the years. But in the past years, what we've done is um, we're very affected by the drought. We're sort of in the ground zero part of the map for the for the what we don't actually call a drought anymore, but the aridification of the West. Yeah. And figuring it's here, you know, figuring it's here to stay until pleasantly surprised otherwise. Um, You know, we've asked a lot of strategic questions about what's a a sustainable path forward, both economically and and for the landscape. And that kind of quickly came around to, well, a cow-calf operation doesn't work anymore because climate chaos requires that you are nimble and and quickly adaptable. Um, And a cow-calf operation is not, not a flexible Operation, you have to keep a certain number of head alive and fed, watered, you know, year round, no matter what the conditions are. Um, Hmm. So we have sold the herd and moved to having a um, third party leasee uh, arrangement. Um, Our leasee has a a very large operation and we can look season to season and um, plan accordingly and say, for example, right now, we know exactly how many tons of hay we have sitting in what places and we know where the water is and a hey, we see uh we can take x number of head of cattle on this date um till at least this point at which point we might ask you to remove them from the ranch or if we have a good winter you know we might consider using this area for spring grazing and basically move on a quarterly basis which Makes budgeting impossible, but um, <laughs> gives us the flexibility that that we need. And we've been resting our public allotments for several years now. Uh, we don't feel that they should be grazed right now, and they just needed uh, a break. So that changes what you're able to do. And uh, but, but to, to answer your question, yes, we have a we have a cow or we have a, a cattle operation. We grow pay to support it in a number of places. Uh, we sell some of it, but we mostly feed it out ourselves. We have a, an elk and deer hunting program in the high country, which is, uh, as with these most of these ranches, a big economic driver, low cost, high return. Uh, we're, and that's part of the Ranching for Wildlife program with the state of Colorado. Okay. And then we do, um, you know, the a lot of... Uh, as we were, you know, we were talking about earlier, wildlife depend on these private lands for a lot of their year. Um, in our case, they're, they spend all fall, winter, and much of the spring. Well, most much of the year, come to think of it, on our private lands. They're a public resource. Um, hunting seasons, uh, you know, going now and and, but also just for other other um, appreciations of wildlife you know, the public we're, we're providing habitat and resources to this public trust um, resource and we're not compensated for it of course and that's just not been the, the model here and so you have to figure well how am i going to going to accomplish habitat improvement projects or things that that Directly benefit wildlife, but don't necessarily do anything for our ranch operation. In fact, they're just going to cost money. You know, how how, do, how does a ranch budget accommodate that? And the short answer is, in most cases, it, it doesn't. There just isn't that surplus funding. So you have to work through the you know the grant world and partnerships and volunteers, and so that's sort of the fourth wing of you know. There's the, the livestock hay and hunting programs and then the fourth wing of the ranch is all the conservation uh, uh, partnerships and projects we do that are some of the more challenging but but rewarding things we do on the ranch.
0: What kind of stuff are you implementing there in terms of, of uh, restoration or, or conservation projects? Anything in particular you're working on right now?
1: Um, yeah, we, a lot of things. Um, uh, and so, from the from the high country down, we basically are looking at our watershed as as a whole system, and thinking about how do we slow the water movement through the system, beginning with capturing it in the high country, uh, keeping it from running off too fast, and 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 just spending more time wetting the soils and and keeping the aquifer filled. And so that's, we've built a lot, we've built hundreds of beaver dam analog structures in the high country. We've we've looked at areas where elk and cattle have really um, disturbed wet meadows and we've built structures there to bring the water table back up instead of flooding off the mountain, the streams it, it's operating as a mm. wet meadow again. And we're removing invasive Russian olive and uh, tamarisk along the riparian mm. areas so my, my afternoon's gonna be flagging leaf trees uh, for bears and, and whatnot um, in, a, in advance of a Russian olive removal project. We're, we're doing seeding experiments in the uplands, surrounding you know in, in the benches above the riparian areas where due to the, the changing climate, the, the, the weeds are winning, um, even in areas where we haven't grazed for years. We're we're doing all sorts of experiments with, with different types of seeding, uh, uh, you know, the mechanics of how to how to seed different seed mixes, uh, different times of seeding, and you know, trying trying to build up a native and resilient grasslands for, for both, um, primarily at this point for, for wildlife because we're we're not using a lot oh, yeah. of these areas for for
0: grazing. Are you competing with uh, cheatgrass over there?
1: Yeah, cheatgrass, bulbous bluegrass, um, I think are the two big offenders. You know, and and then it, the hard part is to know how uh, when we see improvements, is it because of anything we did or is it because it rained in the right place at the right time? And so it's a, it's a constant experimentation and a lot of note-taking.
0: Man, I get excited about that kind of stuff. I uh, I practice landscape architecture and it can be tough to get the money to do it. Um, you know, as I'm sure you're dealing with grants and things like that. But, uh, that's what the kind of project that really fascinates me is like a little bit open-ended and, um, it's tough to get people on board to go, Hey, you know, we're going to try some stuff. It may or may not work, but, uh, let's, you know, let's go after it.
1: Yeah, that is, that is, especially, especially when you're asking it of ranch staff who are already overworked and tired and, have plenty to do to say. Look, you know, we're gonna <laughs> try some of these concepts with no known return, uh, but it, we feel like it's the right thing to do. And on the other hand, you know, we've we've made good use of volunteers, and so for, we're also doing a lot of wildlife-friendly fencing amendments. Um, especially when you think this used to be a bison ranch, you have a uh, you know a lot more f- fencing and and more wires per you know, fence and, um, than you would otherwise need for cattle. And, and a big ranch has miles of fence and it takes, it's never a priority to go remove top wires or fifth wires or put smooth wire, you know, out there. And so but what we found through the land trust, we have more volunteer energy than we can really even handle. Uh, people love getting out on the land and seeing how a a ranch works and helping, Improve things, um, and then and then these uh, youth conservation corps. We've been um, having come in camp for you know a week or two at a time. They they uh, they get paid, but it's not it's not a ton. And and instead, it's more of a really enriching experience for them to to be part of these projects.
0: You mentioned you were letting your public allotments rest for a few years. Uh, this subject has come up. Previously, and I probably put my foot in my mouth about public grazing. Um, It's not something I know a whole lot about, and I've just kind of encountered it uh, in my forays onto public land for hunting or hiking. I just see a lot of cattle in my area and I see the impact, uh, good or bad. Recently, I was driving up to a trailhead, and this massive ranch near me was bringing down, must have been over a thousand cattle from the high country from their summer grazing. And it was, it was a thing of beauty to see this herd uh, coming down. But when I got to the trailhead, the, the impact is obviously really evident. Um, they've, they've really done a number on, on the woods in probably a mostly beneficial way, grazing down. But um, I, I sometimes do question the, the use and, and potentially the overuse of cattle as a tool for, for landscape management. Uh, but I'd love to get your perspective and, and if you could educate me a little bit on how you all approach that.
1: Well, it's going to vary a lot depending on where you are. And, you, you know, a, a, a nice green allotment in Montana in a good year is something an allotment around here is never, ever going to look like. <laughs> and so not all allotments are the same our, our our perspective is that there's not record of there ever having been massive bison herds grazing the high desert southwest yeah. you know we found prehistoric bison skulls on the ranch they they were there but there's not apparently evidence of them being in, in high density there were more elk and deer is my understanding in our particular area until we, we Modern humans came along, but you know our our belief just in looking at the landscape and looking at the changes that are happening with the eridification, looking at a history um, in most of these high desert places of historic overgrazing, before we were more conscious as we are today. We feel like some of what you hear about grazing just does not apply. The landscape doesn't need it in many of these particularly desert allotments. Mm. It needs to rest and it needs rain and it needs reproductive cycles where the native plants have a chance to you know reproduce and of course there's there's places that can get senescent and um less productive if you let them rest for too long Uh, but just looking at our high country which is the most resilient land we have uh it's wetter and cooler in general you know we've let it rest for for two summers now and it looks spectacular I wouldn't let it rest another two years. And my understanding is you can actually start driving off your your ungulate, ungulate population if you let it get too senescent and overgrown. But so it's, it's just trying to find that balance. And, and again, our, our, yeah. our sort of 4,000-foot elevation low, or some people would call it high desert, it's low country for our ranch. It's just very fragile country. And if you're going to graze whether it's cattle or bison or whatever through there um, we've learned it needs to be quick you need to watch every day and you need to factor in rest at the right times uh, and the right durations luckily the blm has been not only easy to work with but they've they've said you know you you guys are some of the only leasees we have that are voluntarily resting and thank you for doing so and no we're not going to start the clock ticking uh, on your rest allowance because we're pleading with a lot of our committees to lighten the grazing on their allotments if possible. And not everybody can get, you know, can afford to.
0: I I mean, that sounds like a totally practical way to approach it. Like Alan Savory talks about in the holistic management approach, hard, Im- hard animal impact, but short-term and, you know, rotation and rest and you've got to tune it in i guess for your individual landscape um i certainly understand that most ranchers you know economically they can't afford to as you say let those allotments rest they may it may mean that they have to reduce their stock and and it'll affect their bottom line so um i i understand but yeah i guess you're confirming a little bit of my um suspicion that uh some of these places are being overgrazed, and um, I don't know. It's a tough problem to even talk about. It's a little bit of a sensitive issue, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah,
1: of course, yeah. So Savory was a board member on Mount, of Mountain Island Ranches uh, years back and helped us develop the holistic oh, wow. range management pro- program. But you know, a lot of his lessons were learned in Rhodesia, and again, not all allotments are the same. And there's a bit of a cult. Uh, cultism around some of his teachings that, um, you know, again, I think the best way to sum it up is you have to look where you're standing and look, look over the past years and think about what the future might look like and, and, and manage accordingly, um, taking into consideration some of the theory and other people's experiences, but really looking at the ground right under your feet. And and, and then there's the practicalities of the logistical operational challenges that, you know, even if you could afford to reduce your herd, you can't necessarily logistically not use your allotments because it ha- it's how your herd gets from point A to point B for the different seasonality cycles of, of a ranch. You know, that's one of the reasons why we got out of a cow-calf operation. They, they use the public allotments in the spring and the fall the transit between our private high country and our private, um, you know, hay farms, but there's no longer reliable water in the, the allotments, and we felt they were needing rest. And so, what you know, what, what would you do if you had a thousand head and no place to put them for spring and no place to put them for, for fall? Some people some people figure out places to ship them, but the shipping's really expensive, and so is having someone else. Hold on to them for a season. So there, it, you know, it's mm-hmm. a the variety of problems and nuances that that overlap, and uh, I think uh, everyone needs to be. It's important to find out what the nuances are of any given operation before we we rush to judge how they're doing.
0: You know, coming back to your your uh, well-rounded experience in conservation, uh, I haven't worked land in a while. I grew up. Uh, working on my my family's small vineyard, and it was an amazing lesson for me in patience to to watch over the years your, you know, your toiling and hard work and, and literally training and pruning these vines to grow up this trellis system, and then you look up one day and they're flourishing, and you've got wine, and it's just sort of it gives you uh, a great perspective on, on resiliency and seasonality and, and these things that I think you can you can just learn a lot through working land for a while. You've been doing that now for a while yourself. Do you feel that sense of optimism um, working that land in the same way that you maybe did in your previous uh, conservation career manifestations or is it, a, is it a little bit different for you working private land I guess versus, versus being more in the public sector?
1: Um <laughs> let's just say I'm not known for my optimism. <laughs> <laughs> um the data doesn't lead me there. But you have to do something with your time on Earth. And one one thing that's been very good for me was with public land management, you spend a lot of time pushing paperwork and It's a long grind, and it's often litigious, and there's a lot of acrimony. Private land management, I can get up and go do something immediately, by and large, and suffer the consequences if I made a mistake and learn from it, or I can hopefully do a good job and look back and be proud that I made the place a little bit better than it was yesterday. And if that's how you spend your days on Earth, I think they're well spent, despite what you might read in the newspaper, despite what the data are telling us um, about where we're headed. You know, it's an opportunity to to do something good and productive with your few days on this planet.
0: That's the the optimism I'm talking about. (laughs) You know, like, you can't save the world, but I think, as you put it earlier, look where you're standing, and if you can make that little patch of dirt a little bit better then um you know you've done you've done something with your life leopold said um the hardest task in human history is to live on a piece of land without spoiling it or something like that and uh i think about that a lot it's like how can you can you can you sustain and not ruin this resource in your lifetime um if so you've probably done a decent job
1: yeah and that's i mean he he said it better than anyone and i think I think um, no demographic is a monolith, and you can't refer to ranchers, period. But many of the ranchers I've met, particularly through the Landowner Alliance, I, I would say one thing everyone shares in common is that sentiment from Leopold. And these are people that wake up and go to sleep thinking about the land beneath their feet. It's it's not... Um, it, it, you know, you never leave the office, and it's something I've come to really admire with all of these folks I've had a chance to work with, um, and there's just so much to learn from everyone's individual experience of trying to not just not spoil the land, but in fact to make it a bit better and to, to make it something that they can pass on to their children and be proud of. I um, mean, it, it's, uh, it's that whole that's a way of being it's it's so much more than an occupation
0: well obviously i really resonate with western landowners um ethos and and the folks that i've talked to including yourself have been really fascinating and just have a a lot of different experiences in in different places around the west so um yeah very excited to to have had the opportunity to connect with you all and um i would i would jump at the opportunity to come and volunteer out on your place. So if there's anything coming up, uh, one of those restoration projects, I'd just love to see that place after having looked at your photographs.
1: Well, you're, you're, you're more than welcome, and we could put you to, you to work right away, so I'll be careful what <laughs> you say.
0: <laughs> I know, right? Um, well, if folks want to see the photographs I'm talking about, what's your photography website?
1: Uh, KenyonFieldsPhoto dot com. Most of the photos of the, on the website are from the ranch, I would say. You know, there's or, or in the greater surrounding area um, in the southwest.
0: Yeah, really, really stunning.
1: Well, thank you for that.
0: Thanks so much, Kenyon. I appreciate your time and um, sharing a little bit of your knowledge with me today.
1: It's been an honor to be invited, and I uh, really appreciate what you're doing. It's, you've got a great roster of. of uh, of guests on this show. So thank you, Dylan.
0: Yeah, I appreciate it. All right, man. Take care. Take care.